Scripture lesson this morning is taken from Paul's letter to the church at Galatia, beginning at the end of the second verse. Listen for the word of God. But if in our effort to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have been found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. But if I build up again the very things that I once tore down, then I demonstrate that I am a transgressor. For, though the, for through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if justification comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly exhibited as crucified. The only thing I want to learn from you is this. Did you receive the Spirit by doing the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? Having started with the Spirit, are you now ending with the flesh? Did you experience so much for nothing? If it really was for nothing. The word of the Lord. Please pray with me. Holy Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be receptive to thee. O God, our strength and our redeemer, we pray. Amen. Now, when it comes to perceiving or processing information, you are good, concrete, sequential folks. Now, I need to qualify that. Maybe some of you are artists. Maybe some of you are wild and crazy. Maybe some of you are not concrete or sequential. But go with me here. Let's pretend. You're good, concrete, sequential folks. You perceive information with your five senses. You give authority to what is right in front of you, to what seems obvious, reliable, coherent, and complete. You don't doubt those things, but you build on them. And you process information in an orderly way. One thing leads to another in a solid line with few gaps. That's why you succeed. Step one to step ten, from start to finish, with a plan. You fill in the gap. You know that 2 plus 2 equals 4, and that knowledge has served you well. People rely on you because you know that. Well done. I think that maybe you think of the church in the same way. The church is what adds things up for you. The church is what completes the bigger equations of life. It fills in the big gaps and gives you solid ground to walk on. 
solid morals to serve, a solid set of services to call on, solid truth in a liquid world. I don't begrudge you any of that. In fact, I share some of that with you. I've just got a question for you today. And it is this. What if God's spirit is neither concrete nor sequential? Or at least not entirely. What if the church is neither of those things either? At least not all the time. Or maybe I can ask it in a better way by asking you this. Have you ever experienced your faith or the church in a more abstract or random way? Has your experience of faith or the church ever created gaps, upset the apple cart, flipped your assumptions, broken rules, surprised you in a really deep way, made you actually kind of creatively anxious? rather than carefully safe or secure, made you uncomfortable in a productive way? Has the church ever been a place of eye-opening discovery for you, of giddy freedom? Now, I don't mean license, like desperately flailing about to find something to hang on to, that's not the kind of freedom I'm talking about. I mean the kind of freedom that comes from a powerful sense that there is something underneath, within, around, beyond all the stuff that we depend upon and trust in to make life livable. Something that shows that all that stuff is okay, important, but not enough, not inspiring, doesn't give you what it promises. I mean the kind of freedom that frees you from the stuff of living and takes you to the substance of life. Has your faith ever poked a hole in the great wall of the world in front of you? Even though he uses first century language to do it, I think the Apostle Paul is asking the believers in Galatia just that question. Now, with a Seminary-level scholar of the book of Galatians sitting right behind me in Dr. Hegeman, I should be careful with what I say about this wonderful book. I did not get my sermon pre-approved. But I did warn Mike that I'd be taking a few liberties today with Galatians, and I want to catch the flow of this great letter of Christian freedom and invite you to join me as I do. You see, as far as I can tell, the Apostle Paul is absolutely convinced 
that the death and resurrection of Jesus can make sense of who God is and what God is doing with God's people and with all creation. Things hold together in the story of Jesus, Paul believes. He is convinced that the sense that the story makes is so simple and so coherent that there is no need for sophisticated intellectual gymnastics to understand it. It is concrete and it is sequential. Two plus two makes four. And four is the great gift from God. We can like Paul for that and we can rely on him. And yet. And yet I also think that Paul is as absolutely convinced if not even more convinced that there is also another more volatile kind of truth to preach to. And that that more earth-shattering truth makes that simpler truth true. That in Christ, two plus two does not equal our four. And that God's four is a larger sum than ours. You see, before the cosmos coheres, it first crumbles. The ways we try to keep things together can shake loose when the Holy Spirit begins to vibrate through what is. Assumptions can break down, things can get out of order, the end can make more sense of the beginning, and things can get mixed up in between when the Spirit works, and God makes all things new, really new. The gospel is life-upsetting, life-giving, real news. And we should be reminded of this every single day day. So both of these truths, the earth-shattering truth and the world-making truth, move through Paul's very being and through what his writings want to teach us. So let's go back to those verses from Galatians that I read this morning, and let's take some of those liberties that I said I'd take. Paul talks of sin, of flesh, of law, and he urges the Galatian Christians that they should not forget the freedom from the tyranny of those things that their faith has given them. Now, while the first century meanings of sin, flesh, works, or law might feel a bit foreign to us today, the core of what Paul is saying is not foreign at all. It is as startling today as it was then. Think with me of all of the rules and all the expectations and the images and the assumptions that you accept today about how things fit together. You know what I mean. And all that you're taught every day from everything around you about what makes for stability or success or happiness or duty or bliss 
or authentic 21st century living or a good life at whatever age or time of life you're in. We are as subject to law as ever. We are beholden to all kinds of standards, spoken and unspoken. Some are good for us, some are not so good, and many are just accepted without thought. Paul is not against rules as such. He just thinks they never deliver what they promise. And sometimes they create the very things that they pretend to fix. And he is surely right about that. For there are higher values and higher truths available to us that give us higher freedom than what we get from the rules we live by. Paul calls foolish any idea that we can be saved by doing all the right things or by living in all the right ways or by keeping it all together and the lines clear and beating up on ourselves when we don't. When we encounter God, the weak wall of that delusion can finally come down and we should not rebuild it. Light can shine through the cracks of that wall as it comes tumbling down. Power of a deeper way of living, grace of letting go, joy of receiving and offering gestures of love, energy from openness to surprise, focus from a new kind of clarity, Hope from no longer hiding from what is so we can finally participate in what can be. Peace from resting in the spirit. This freedom can be as exhilarating as it can be hard because it goes to the very heart of things. And again, Paul is saying that if you catch a glimpse of this, don't go back. Which is what God seems to be saying in every story of Scripture, from the first chapter to the last. Don't go back. Leave some spiritual bills unpaid some sentences unfinished, some doors open, some hope raw, some nerves still quivering, some breath still gasping. Let there be a gap in the circle to keep it open. Let life be a mystery and the living Christ your guide for exploring it. Stand on your tiptoes for God's sake. There's always more resurrection to live until the day when all will know and all will share and love will be the only law we know through all eternity. Paul's language for this is this. If in Christ we die to sin, why do we build on sin? 
If in Christ we die to the flesh, why do we depend on flesh to live? If in Christ we are a new creation, why live as if we're not? My language, at least this morning for this, is this. If in faith we are no longer only victims of the things that hurt us, why do we continue to construct our lives out of fear? If in faith we are no longer bound by cautious calculation, but can live instead in hope, if in faith we are no longer bound by scarcity or pain or cynicism, but can imagine thriving and loving and forgiving relationships, if in faith we are no longer bound by the idea that we have to get more than we give, but can model Christ in small ways for each other, then why are we so tempted to live as though we have no faith, as if we are alone? or as if reality is not transparent to transcendence. Now, I want to find a story to bring this all to you. I want to tell a story about someone else, just like you, who has experienced God in this way and reshaped their priorities in response or, or found courage to face difficulties or comfort in loss, or love for worship, or passion for social change. Those stories are, are all around us. They're right here in this sanctuary. Many of you could come to this microphone and tell stories of your own life about just those things. What comes to me today to tell you is, is a less dramatic story. Not off-key, but a little quieter. One that comes from my own life. I told this story about a decade ago from this pulpit, so I'm going to tell you again in case you weren't here or in case you don't remember. It comes from when I was eight years old, 1967, just outside of Detroit, Michigan, during the period of the Detroit riots. I still remember the feeling of a deep and profound wall that was going up of, of hatred and violence and worry and pain. I didn't understand it, I was too young. I don't entirely understand it today, though I'm trying. But I do know it felt like the world was on fire. My family was loving and was secure and was safe. And we were members of a small and beautiful, nurturing Episcopalian congregation just north of the city also. A kind of place where you could easily be separated from the world around you and pretend as though all was fine. But that little church, as sweet and gentle as it was, did not do that. They heard the call from the wider church to help. They heard a call from the wider church to pay attention. And they decided to join with other small congregations in the area right after the riots were concluded to go into the city and join other churches to help. And one afternoon, we were invited to go down and help clean up at Trinity Episcopal Church which is now on Martin Luther King Avenue, just a few blocks from Rosa Parks Avenue, which was then 12th Street, where it all started. 
And my parents, who were compassionate, loving, caring people, but not politically active by any means, decided to go. For they heard the call of the church, and they put my 10-year-old sister and their 8-year-old son in the back of their car, and they joined with others, and they went to Trinity Episcopal Church. And we spent a day. The adults talking to other adults and helping around the area, the kids meeting each other and playing. And what I remember from that day are not long discussions, aren't, aren't debates and plans, makings, and attempts to put it all together. What I remember from that day is kickball in the alley. That's it. Playing kickball in the alley with new friends who I would never have met if not for the church. I could tell you bigger stories of experiences that built faith in me or that challenged my faith to the core. I could put those stories in sequence and try to tie it all up in a theologically coherent way. But I actually think that I remain Christian today, decades later, in many ways, because of that little hole that was poked that day into the wall the world was building. Across lines, showing new possibilities, inviting the spirit to work, and setting the stage for more. My friends, I want to encourage you to let God open things up for you to let the church shake your world a bit, to open you to ideas you might never have considered if not for the church, to open you to ways of giving and loving and acting and going and doing and praying that you would never have imagined you'd be part of if not for the church, and to open you to encounters with people in their pain, with ministry in its potential, and with the power of love in ways you might never have been open to if not for Christ nudging you forward. Or as the apostle would say, I want to encourage you to keep with the Spirit. Amen.